0: How about you I was excited for that fourth verse. <laughs> well let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Genesis chapter 26, looking at verses uh, 12 through 22 this morning. The title of our message this morning is God's Unconditional Promises. And thank the Lord for those because those are promises God makes us without any conditions attached. We find ourselves this morning in Genesis 26 as we're moving through the book of Genesis verse by verse. The focus of Genesis 26 is exclusively on the patriarch, Isaac. We've seen God reconfirm the covenant that he made with Abraham to Isaac, verses 1 through 5. And then we caught Isaac in a lie, verses 6 through 11. And yet, in spite of it, God continues to bless Isaac, Right down to a struggle that he has with property and wells, verses 12 through 22. He thought property disputes were just sort of a modern day problem. No, it goes all the way back into patriarchal times. So as we look at this uh, struggle this morning that Isaac has, and in spite of it, God's continued blessing, here is a brief outline that we're going to follow. But notice, first of all, Isaac's prosperity. And we see his produce, verse 12, his greatness, verse 13, and his possessions, verse 14. Notice his produce. Genesis chapter 26, look at verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. This is sort of interesting because the patriarchs up until this point were people that dealt with livestock and notice for the first time Isaac is involved in farming. Uh, his wealth was calculated in terms of livestock and herdsmen. Now all of a sudden he gets involved in farming and he seems to have success in whatever he touches. Because he reaps a harvest of a hundredfold. Now this uh, harvest of one hundredfold is very interesting because Jesus used the harvest of the hundredfold in the context of evangelism in the parable of the sower, you'll remember. Matthew thirteen twenty-three. Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this man hears the word, And understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. It is interesting that the Lord is the one that allows us to acquire wealth. And sometimes I think we define wealth a little too narrowly. Our bank account, our career, retirement account, real estate holdings, It's interesting that Jesus himself takes the concept of wealth, in this case farming or agrarian success, and applies it to evangelism. We have the ability today to spread the gospel. And as people believe the gospel, God looks at that as wealth itself. In fact, that's the greatest wealth that can accumulate And I would say that what our country needs today is not necessarily more things, but we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes us very, very wealthy. But Isaac is practicing farming, and he is becoming wealthy, and you'll look at the second part of verse 12, it says, And the Lord blessed him. Why did the Lord um, continue to bless him? The Lord continued to bless him because God, through the Abrahamic covenant, said, I will bless you. And you'll notice also that he was blessed because he stayed in the land. It says, Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. It's interesting that he is having these blessings in spite of the fact that there's a famine. We saw the famine, I think, all the way back to verse 1. And he was sort of tempted in the midst of the famine to leave the land. God told him earlier in the chapter not to do that. He probably thought, well, if I'm not going to provide... If no one's going to provide for me, I've got to provide for myself. God says, no, I want you to stay exactly where you are. I don't want you to leave the land of Canaan in spite of the famine, and I will bless you. And that's exactly what happened. John 13, verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So many times we wonder why we're not blessed as we should be in the Christian life. And maybe the answer relates to the fact of our obedience or lack thereof or disobedience. Whenever you obey God, the blessings of God follow. I'm not arguing here that God is going to make your life easy necessarily. But the blessed life in God is the obedient life. Isaac does exactly what he's told. It probably made no sense to him. And the blessings of God continued on with him as he became wealthy in produce. And you look down at verse 13 and he actually became very great. It says the man became rich and continued to grow richer. Until he became very wealthy. Now Abraham his father was already rich. We know that from Genesis 13 verse 2. It says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. In fact, this is why, as Abraham dealt with um, Melchizedek, I believe it was, he says that I will take no thread or sandal or thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abraham or Abram rich. Abraham was rich not because of Melchizedek, he was not rich because of anything that happened in Genesis 14, he was rich because of the Abrahamic covenant. God in the Abrahamic covenant promised Abraham blessings, and part of the blessings for him was material blessings. And now as Isaac is the recipient of this covenant, he is becoming wealthy in the land in spite of famine. You'll notice the word rich. You get the idea there also that he became richer. And he became very, very wealthy. Now you may not today have the same livestock and real estate that Isaac had. But I'm here to tell you that as a Christian, you are very, very rich. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in fact uh, to the church at smyrna in revelation chapter 2 jesus says i know of your poverty and yet you are you are rich and so we have sort of a narrow way of calculating wealth today in the old testament patriarchs it was material And of course, God can bless people materially in the present age, although I don't think that's guaranteed the same way it was guaranteed for Isaac. But what God has said is through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, because all of his resources, spiritually speaking, have been transferred to your account at the point of faith alone in Christ alone Though you are in poverty, Smyrna, you're actually very, very wealthy. And you don't realize it. The wealth and the riches of God. And this is why Paul in the book of Ephesians simply prays. He does this in chapter 1. He does this in chapter 3. That our eyes of understanding might be opened so that we can understand what we have and who we are in Christ Jesus. Most uh, Christians sort of live their lives kind of like these stories that you hear about every once in a while. Of somebody that's homeless or living under the, a bridge somewhere. And in actuality they've inherited a ton of money. And yet they don't realize their wealth. They don't know how to access their wealth. And they're living in poverty in spite of the fact that they're very, very rich. If you can put that in your mind for a second, that's how most Christians live and think. They look at themselves as absolute paupers. But God said, I've already made you rich through the provisions of Jesus Christ. So Isaac is wealthy because of his produce. He is becoming great. He's becoming more wealthy, and he's also wealthy because of his possessions. And you see that there in verse 14. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. What made him wealthy was flocks and servants. And it's kind of interesting how the Bible defines wealth versus how God defines material wealth. Wealth in the Bible is not having a bunch of a fiat currency in your bank account. It's what you own in terms of tangible goods. In this case, for the patriarchs, it was real estate, livestock, etc., etc., etc. Why are all of these things accruing to Isaac? Because God, all the way back in Genesis 12, verse 2, promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, personal blessings. And this is what Isaac um, experienced. And you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this the same guy that just told a lie to save his skin in the prior paragraph? I mean, why does a guy like that just keep getting more and more wealthy? That doesn't seem fair. Well, the answer relates to the fact that Isaac had, as did his father Abraham, an unconditional covenant. We have outlined why the covenant is unconditional when we were back in Genesis chapter 15. It is a covenant whose promises completely rest on God's shoulders for that covenant to be executed. Um, this is why Isaac is, or Abraham, I should say, was actually asleep when that covenant was entered into. And only God, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through the animal pieces. God is saying this covenant rests completely upon my shoulders, not upon the shoulders of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is why a guy can tell a lie and obviously God is against lying. Because one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not what? Thou shalt not lie. This is why a guy can tell a lie and still end up becoming, in the next paragraph, born more wealthy. And before you speak too fast on the unfairness of that, keep in mind that you have the exact same thing in Jesus Christ. The promises that you have in Jesus Christ, the fact that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, has come to you with no strings attached. Meaning that you may go out this week and live the godliest life imaginable, and yet those promises are still yours. And very tragically, as a Christian, you may go out and live an ungodly life. Obviously, the Bible is not promoting that. But those promises are still yours because they are unconditional. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Isaac's standing before God Related to the concept of grace. Unmerited favor. He kept getting wealthy. Despite his lies. And we have the exact same concept. The concept of grace. We got into this relationship. With our Lord Jesus Christ. Through grace. We are kept. In grace. Unmerited favor. And if even if we are faithless. Which tragically. I hope doesn't happen. But even if that happens, he still remains faithful because our God's dealings with us, just like with Isaac, are related to grace. So he had this prosperity. And watch out when you begin to prosper because that's when spiritual warfare really starts to take off in your life. Because the Philistines those in the land of Israel that were watching Isaac prosper became envious. And they involved themselves, verses 14 and 15, in an internal reaction, end of verse 14, and then an external reaction to it, verse 15. Look at the second half of verse 14 if you could. So the Philistines envied him. Envy is... uh, a bit different than jealousy. I would say that envy is more intense than jealousy. Envy is sort of like jealousy on steroids, if we can put it that way. And you'll notice that the envy of the inhabitants of the land only started once Isaac was being blessed materially. This is something that happens over and over again in the, in the Bible. When God begins to use people, for example, when ministries begin to prosper, ministries begin to grow, jealousy takes place. This is something that happened to Peter, Acts five, verse seventeen, and it's also something that happened to Paul, Acts thirteen, verse forty-five. Starting with Peter, it says in Acts five, seventeen, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy because the masses were listening to Peter and not the religious authorities. The identical thing happens to the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, verse 45. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds... The words is success, if we can put it that way, of Paul. They were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. All of this to say that if the Lord has increased you in any, in any way, shape, or form, spiritually, materially, if that's been the case for you as we close out this particular year... That is the time in your life really to have your antenna up because here comes the attack. Joseph uh, went into his trials, as we're going to see in the book of Genesis, once we get to chapters 37 and following, after he had been elevated to a position where he was in charge of everything in his master's household. That's when the temptation came. David, of course, was tempted to commit sexual immorality with Bathsheba after he had come off a whole string of military victories. Uh, Daniel, of course, was suddenly on the radar screen of the Persians in terms of his prayer life when he had an excellent spirit and was advancing through the ranks of the Persian government of the time. Jesus uh, entered into his temptation at the hands of Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 after he had been baptized, after the Holy Spirit fell upon him, and after he had heard and everybody else heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's at the end of Matthew 3. Right away in Matthew 4, Jesus enters into temptation. And this is the same kind of thing that is happening here to Isaac. And uh, it's a pattern that's going to happen in your life in some sense or substance. And it's something to be aware of. Usually when things are going well, we have a tendency to let down our guard and relax. The Bible says, no, you better keep your guard up now because you're getting ahead And here comes the attack. So Isaac's prosperity provoked the envy of the Canaanites, and they actually do something external. Verse 15 it says, Now all the wealth which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. So Abraham was actually the original owner of these various wells. That well should have gone to Isaac, but the Philistines were basically too jealous to see that happen, so they plugged up all the wells. That's what envy does. Envy causes you to act in a way that's not really logical and it's not really rational. Abraham had these wells legally by a covenant that he had made and that Abimelech had made with him, Genesis chapter 21. And the Philistines got in there and they say that we don't like this prosperity, particularly with Isaac and his father before him. So we're going to fill up all the wells with dirt and pretend those wells were never wells. It's kind of interesting that Muslims do the same kind of thing they go into holy sites in Judaism and Christianity and just archeologically demolish it and pretend like something godly or christian or jewish you know was ever happening there to begin with i mean that practice and principle is not new to islam the the philistines long before the rise of islam we're doing the exact same thing. And in this case, the motive was jealousy, envy. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of this verse says, the envy of the Philistines was so great that they were willing to cut off vital water supply in the context of a famine. Remember, there's a famine going on here. We saw that back in verse 1. And what do you need in a famine? Well, you need water. And yet envy was so strong in the Philistine, Philistines that they actually did something against their own self-interest. By plugging up a well with, with earth and dirt and cutting themselves off from a vital water supply. What, what do they say? Cutting off your nose despite your face? Something like that? That's what envy does. It, it forces you to do things that aren't even in your self-interest. This is why the Bible warns over and over again about sins taking place in the heart. Proverbs 4:23 in the King James Version says, "Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the spring forth, out of it spring forth the issues of life. I mean, is there jealousy in your heart towards somebody? Or something, or someone, has that materialized into something more intense called envy? The Bible says be very very careful about that, because if that goes unchecked, essentially what you're going to do is you're going to start doing things that aren't in your self-interest. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And so this uh, Philistine reaction then leads to a Philistine request of Isaac. And you see that there in verse 16. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful. So envy leads to this request. Even the Philistines recognize the hand of God and the blessing of God on Isaac's life. Of course, the scripture is bringing out His blessings, because all the way back in Genesis 12, verse 2, God said to the patriarch Abraham, I will bless you, an unconditional covenant. And here you sit as a child of God in the 21st century. Your needs are met because God says, I'll meet your needs. You have an understanding of spiritual things that the world system doesn't have because you can only understand spiritual things through God's Word and through the illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit. And here you are with your blessed life in the presence of your own family, in the presence of your own extended family, in in your workplace. And, you know, we wonder why the world doesn't just stand up and applaud our lives. Well, it doesn't work that way. A lot of times people are just plain jealous of you or envious of you because they can instinctively recognize that you have something they don't have. And our, our uh, agenda as Christians is, is to give them access to what they're jealous of. But many times they won't want access to it. They just sort of want to sit in their own state of jealousy, in their own state of envy. And we wonder, gosh, maybe we've missed uh, the calling of God on our lives. Maybe we're doing something wrong. No, you're doing something exactly right. You're, you're, You're reflecting the blessed life that God has given you. And we sometimes wonder, well, why isn't everybody applauding us? They didn't applaud Isaac. They didn't applaud Jesus either, for that matter. There was no more, nobody more blessed and right with God than Jesus, the Son of God. And yet he was the immediate object of hatred and scorn. You know, Joseph's brothers didn't really like him. Particularly when he was, as we're going to read in Genesis later, not today, don't worry. <laughs> the object of his father's affection. And was actually given a, a multi-colored robe that was beautiful and it looked perfect on Joseph and once the favor of God came upon Joseph, his brothers became very jealous of him and actually committed what we would call attempted murder left him for, for dead in a ditch and we sometimes think that these things won't happen to us and yet it happens to Bible characters over And over again. The day of prosperity can be a tough road when you think about it from this particular angle. But it's interesting, Isaac could have stayed and fought legally. I'll show you, he could have done that. He obviously had the power to stay and fight because the Philistines themselves, Abimelech, acknowledges that you're more powerful than we are, but Isaac doesn't do that. He just leaves. And you see his departure in verse 17. It says, Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Legally, he could have stayed and fought. Because according to Genesis 20, verse 15, his father Abraham already had a a deal with Abimelech. Back in Genesis chapter 20 verse 15 we read then Abimelech said here is my land or my la- here my land is at your disposal settle wherever you please Isaac I suppose could have claimed that right legally from Abimelech He was more powerful than the Philistines verse 16 says that, but he just made a decision to sort of leave, go further east to where there were other wells. And what in the world is Isaac doing here? Actually, when you think about it, it's it's very admirable. Because the New Testament teaches this in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, Be at peace with all men. You can't always be at peace with all men, but there are times where it does depend upon us, and the Bible says be at peace with all men. I mean, there's going to be times in your life as a Christian where you have the right to fight back, to claim your rights, to take up your metaphorical sword, to exert your authority, But the Holy Spirit will sort of touch you in those moments and he he will say to you, let it go. Just let it go. I'll provide for you in another way. As long as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. You know, our, our message is offensive enough without us adding to the offense because we're people that are constantly fighting and trying to take our ground and assert ourselves. How can the world even see the love of Christ when we're in this perpetual fighting mode? Take take the insult, take the injustice or injustice, move on. And when should you stay and fight and when should you move on? That's really an issue between you and the Lord as you walk with Him. I think the Holy Spirit is a pretty good barometer there. There have been a lot of times in my life where I stood and fight, fought far longer than I should have, and I embarrassed myself, and I embarrassed the cause of Christ. And why not just, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men? This is sort of the thing that Isaac is doing here, although he was going against his own legal rights in the process. So what follows verses 18 through 22 is he goes elsewhere um, east of Gerar in a kind of a wadi or a valley and he begins to find other wells and he begins to sort of redig wells that had been stopped up wells also belonging to his father uh, Abraham and so here's kind of a sub-outline as we work our way through verses 18 through 22 this morning. We have the redigging of Abraham's wells. Look, if you will, at verse 18. It says, Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, And he gave them the names which his father had given them. So apparently they had not just stopped up or filled up wells in the immediate area of Gerar. They had actually done this all over the place. Why did they do it? The same reason there's battles concerning geography today in the land of Israel. There are people that want you to believe that the Hebrews, the Jewish people, don't own the land. After all, there's been a Canaanite culture there for time immemorial, we're told, by the world community. And they really don't like it when the Jews dig up something that corroborates the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter. So, it, so we're in this kind of world of historical revisionism concerning geography. And that's the same kind of thing that the Philistines were doing. I mean, they stopped up wells out of jealousy, but then they went further and they began to stop up other wells and fill up other wells to pretend like Abraham never had any claim in this land ever. And so this is the thing that Isaac is struggling with, is he leaves Abimelech and seeks out these other wells because he doesn't want to be an adjutant to Abimelech. As long as it depends upon you. Be at peace with all men. Henry Morris, in his Genesis commentary, writes, Here, there were other wells which Abraham had constructed, but these had been plugged up when Abraham died. Evidently, the Philistine settlers were not yet numerous or prosperous enough themselves to need them, but wanted to discourage others from settling in the meantime, as they were trying to maintain a claim to the land themselves. Isaac embarked on a program of reopening the wells. No one else was using this part of the land, so he thought that the Philistines would not object. To emphasize his right to the wells by way of inheritance, he used the same names Abraham had originally given them. Isaac's memory was pretty good because he could remember the names of these different wells given to Abraham. So he... Finds well number one. That's in verses nineteen and twenty. He finds well number two. That's in verse twenty-one. And he finds well number three. That's in verse twenty-two. So I was going to entitle this message "Spring Up, O oh Well," but I don't know if that would have worked too well. But but look, if you will, this first well that he finds. It's in verse nineteen. It says, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, uh, in the valley of Gerar, east of Gerar, there was a valley. Um, there was probably a wadi there. A wadi just means kind of a kind of a, a river of sorts. Not a massive river, but a small river nonetheless. And Isaac finds this well, originally dug by Abraham, and he calls it the, or found this well of flowing water. I realize that this is not a text dealing with the Holy Spirit, but it is very interesting to me that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament goes by the exact name, same name, and ministry of living water. In fact, this is the whole point of the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. It says in John 4:13 4, and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus says to the woman at the well in Samaria, if you drink from this water, you'll thirst again. I think referring to her lifestyle. She, like all human beings, had a God-shaped vacuum inside of her. A void that could only be filled with a relationship with God because that's how we're designed. And if you don't have a relationship with the God that made you, the void is still there. And so you try to fill it with artificial substitutes. The world system basically offers two, uh, power or three, prosperity and pleasure. I'll fill up this void that I have in my life and my heart with these artificial substitutes. Jesus says you keep doing that and you're going to be thirsty again. I think she was trying to fill up the void in her life through the pursuit of pleasure. Because after all, Jesus says you've had five husbands. And the current man you're with, you're not even married to. And I love her answer. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That's a pretty good guess. Just read right into her lifestyle. And showed her what she was trying to do with her life because she had no relationship with God. And so if you want this void filled, earthly water, so to speak, is not going to do it. You have to have a relationship with the God that made you. Or he will come inside of you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and will begin to express himself through you. And because that is the reason for which you were made, now you have the ability to find fulfillment that you couldn't find before. Jesus, when he spoke of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, said this, John 7, 37-39, Now on the first day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I mean, not only do I want to have a relationship with you, as the living water via the Holy Spirit comes into you. But that's only half of what I want. What I want to do is use you as my vessel or vehicle to export that ministry of the Holy Spirit to other thirsty people. What does Jesus want to do with your life? What does He want to do with my life? What does He want to do with all of our lives? He wants to deal with the ultimate problem we have, the void inside of us, because we don't know God. And the reason we don't know God is we're born separated from Him because of original sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Jesus says, I want to fix that. Trust in my work on the cross. Then the Holy Spirit will regenerate you and come into you. And then as you grow in the Christian life, what will start to happen is I will start to use your life as a channel of blessing to other people. Which was God's original design for us anyway before we went into sin. And as we start to walk in the design He has given us, boy, suddenly life starts to make sense. I'm finding a a fulfillment in this that I couldn't find any other way. And He wants us to walk according to the Holy Spirit as Christians. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It's like looking at a person that needs a walker where you're walking along with that walker and you're completely and totally dependent upon that walker. That's how our lives are supposed to be in God as God's people. We're completely depending upon the Lord for everything. Temptation comes upon you. I'm going to have to depend upon the Lord to help me with this one. A financial need comes upon you. I'm going to have to depend upon the Lord to help me with this one. And in fact, God has actually put those circumstances in your life, our lives, to teach us to depend upon Him. We're We're leaning on that walker. And as we're leaning upon that walker, the presence of the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, suddenly I find I can say no to the sin nature. I don't have to succumb to envy and jealousy. I can actually be happy for somebody if they're getting ahead and I'm not. How do you do that? The Holy Spirit helps you with that. Someone um, has said that the Christian life is difficult. I don't agree with that. I don't think the Christian life is difficult. I think the Christian life is impossible without the Holy Spirit. But dependence and walking upon the Holy Spirit makes the Christian life a possibility. It's this living water. And, of course, the servants of Abimelech followed Isaac, and they make a contention that that well isn't yours either. And you see that contention in verse 20. And the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying the water is ours. Well, it's not yours, because it was given to Abraham, Genesis 21, but we're going to revise history. It's ours. So they named the well Essek because they contended with him. So this particular well actually got the name Essek, which means contention. Charles Ryrie on this verse says Essek means contention. He says disputes over water rights were common in the desert areas. Henry Morris says, the Philistine herdsmen, however, claim this water should belong to them. Evidently on the ground that Isaac no longer had the right to dig new wells in their country. Rather than argue the point, why not argue the point, Isaac? Go to war. The law is on your side. Well, because Paul would later write, be at peace with all men as much as it depends upon you. You can't be at peace with all men when you're fighting everything, everyone about everything, even though you might be in the right. There's going to be times where you just have to forfeit your rights. That's the walk of the Spirit. Yeah, but they ran the red light and they ran the stop sign. Holy Spirit says, let it go. They were a tire in my parking space. Let it go. It's not worth it. Walk with me. I'll take care of your car and your your tire and everything else so rather than argue the point Isaac instructed his own herdsmen to let them have the well and dig another farther up the valley so then he finds a second well this one is his right verse 21 they dug another well So we have a second well in the valley. Unfortunately, the men of Gerar followed him and demanded the second well too. So that second well got a name, just like the first well was named Contention. The second well got a name, and you see it there at the end of verse 21, and they quarreled over it too. He named it Sitna. What does that mean in Hebrew? Essic means contention. What does sitna mean? Sitna means enmity, adversary, and watch this. It's the same root where we get the word Satan. This is where the name Satan comes from. An adversary, an opponent, someone that's called our enemy. Did you know that you have an enemy? In fact, I'll tell you in just a second, you actually have three enemies. Well, I don't want three enemies. God says you had three enemies, you inherited three enemies. The moment you trusted my work for salvation, you got three. What are the three enemies of the Christian? The world, the flesh, and the devil. See, before you got saved, they weren't your enemies. Everybody was, you know, kumboya. You just marched according to the drumbeat of the sin nature. No problem. You were just fulfilling your job description. You marched according to the value system of the cosmos or the world system. And Ephesians 2 verses 2 and 3 says that we were blinded by the power of Satan. We just lived our lives. Everything was fine. And then you heard the gospel through a proclamation and you believed it. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and you have a new nature. And you think everything's going to be just fine, right? And as you walk with God, you start to figure out, well, wait a minute, the Bible says do this, and my sin nature is still telling me to do why. Wait a minute, the, the value system of the world, everything that everybody's living for... Boy, that used to make a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't make any sense to me anymore because the Bible says I should have a different value system. In fact, I should allow my mind to be renewed. And then you have Satan himself, a fallen angelic being who has deceived one-third of the angels into falling with him. And suddenly the Apostle Paul says, Oh, by the way, you better put on the full armor of God. Why is that, Paul? Because Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I call the concept three-dimensional warfare. You don't just have one enemy, you don't have two enemies, you've got three. Number one, your sin nature still wants to do its thing, but the old nature says, don't do that, follow me. The Holy Spirit inside of you says, don't follow the old nature, follow me. Everybody at the water coolers laughing at the dirty joke, you don't really think it's funny, because it's worldly humor. And suddenly the simplest things in life I mean I mean I'm talking about things that are absolutely simple, that used to require no effort at all, like when to read, showing up to church, evangelism, leading your home in the things of God. Why is there such a struggle? I mean, why is it every time I I try to step forward, it's like I'm, I'm hitting this wall all of the time of resistance. That wall of resistance wasn't there before. When I was just a religious person. Before I was a Christian. Well, that's enemy number three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And unless you understand exactly who your enemies are. I mean... I remember basketball days, high school, college, just having to watch game tape after game tape, after game tape, after game tape, after game tape, after game tape of the opponent, whoever, whoever we were facing that week, of them playing. Because the premise is, you can't win this game unless you understand what the other side is gonna do. You have to understand who their stars are, what their weaknesses are, what their tactics are. And unless you understand it, you're not going to be very successful in defeating an opponent in the game of basketball. And if that principle works with basketball, how much more should it work in the concept of of spiritual warfare? As a Christian... You have to understand exactly who your three enemies are and the biblical steps necessary to overcome each enemy because God in His grace package to you has given you those resources as well. You have everything you need to overcome the world system. You have everything you need to stand your ground against Satan. And you have everything you need to say no to the sin nature. It's just a matter of figuring out what God says about each And walking in the resources of God. And if you don't know who your three enemies are. And you don't understand the biblical steps for overcoming each enemy. You spend your whole life as a Christian neutralized. Ineffective. Fruitless. And God can't use your life the way he wants to use it. Because you're still in the grip of your three opponents. So you need to be in an environment that's teaching you who those three enemies are and how to overcome each one, which is a concept I call three-dimensional warfare. And I'm just sort of mentioning it here in a cursory way. But maybe that's the next topical study we should do, assuming we ever finish Genesis, the way things are going. Because this is information that you have to have. So it's interesting that Isaac is walking into the things of God and he's getting pushback. People are quarreling with him and, and, and it's so bad. This well that they're arguing doesn't belong to him when it does. He actually just names it Satan. It's really what's happening here. I mean, if you have a piece of property and it's named Satan, you probably need to stay away from that property. <laughs> but there's better news with well number three. And you see that there in verse 22. We have a find, verse 22a. No contention, yay! Verse 22b. And then Isaac's conclusion. It says there in verse 22a, he moved away from there and dug another well. He went away from Sitna beyond any region that the Philistines had claim of to dig another well. And something very happy happens here. There's no contention. It says, and they did not quarrel over it. Why would they not quarrel over it? It was just too far out of the way. Who cares about that one? So it got another name. The first one, contention. The second one, adversary or Satan. And then this last one is called uh, Rehoboth. And they did not quarrel over it, so he named it uh, Rehoboth, if I'm pronouncing that right. What does that mean? It means room. Broad place. To make room for plenty of room and so Isaac reaches a conclusion it's at the end of verse 22 at last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land and that's how the paragraph ends what is the gospel of Jesus Christ all about Famous song, There's Room at the Cross for You. It's about the idea that God, through the provision of Jesus Christ, God the Son, has made room for every human being. Every single human being is savable. Although they're not saved until they actually trust in the Messiah. You know, the whole situation with Noah's Ark, um, all of these pictures of the giraffe sticking his head out the window, there's not a shred of biblical evidence to support these kind of pictures. Because when you actually do an engineering feasibility study of Noah's Ark, and there's a book I'll recommend to you, his last name is Wood Morapi. He's an engineer. The title of it is a Engineering feasibility study of Noah's ark, looking at all of the dimensions of the ark, looking at the animals that were actually in the ark. I mean, his conclusion is the ark was very, very empty. It was not 100% full. I think he gives a number of somewhere between only filled up 20 to 40% of the ark. And yet there was room for people. Particularly after Noah's preaching for 120 years. What is this showing? It's showing that God and his provision makes room for every human being. There's room in the land. Now, whether you actually get into the land or get into the ark or not. That's that's your problem. God has made it very, very simple. You get in through grace. Faith alone through Christ alone. But if you don't get into the ark, apparently most of the population in Noah's day didn't. That's an issue on their shoulders because provision was made available for them. There's room in the land. There's room at the cross. Salvation is free for everyone. And yet, how many people hearing this message, this presentation today, will simply say no to it? And then in the next life, when they find themselves in a place of eternal retribution, blame God. As if it's somehow God's fault not God's fault. It's your fault for not taking God up on His offer of salvation. I mean, it's your fault you drowned in the flood because you didn't get in the ark like you were supposed to. It doesn't just say room here. It says there's room in the land and we're going to be fruitful. There's fruitfulness in the land. Did you know that's what God wants to do with your life? He wants to make it completely and totally productive. To achieve his purposes. It's not like he grabs you at salvation. And says okay sit on the bench for the rest of the game. He wants you in the game. He wants you to. Play a key role in the success. Of the endeavor. Fruitfulness. And talks here about living water we saw that back in verse 20 that's what jesus is he's living water he'll satisfy the deepest level of need a human has even the need that they can't see they need a relationship with god jesus says i'll give them that at the point of faith alone in christ alone when they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And then their life will sort of become like an overflowing well where God will start to use you in His timing and His providence to be a blessing to other people. The Holy Spirit, there's room, and fruitfulness. All wonderful segues into the Gospel. And of course the Gospel is very simple. It's simple enough for a child to believe. It's deep enough for a theologian to drown in. But the simplicity of it is Jesus said, his final words on the cross, it is finished. Meaning that everything necessary to bridge the gap between lost humanity and a holy God has been bridged. There's nothing left for us to do other than to receive it as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to trust or believe in the one he has sent. So, as I'm speaking, our hope and prayer is that many people in the building, listening online, listening on archives, or watching on archives after the fact, will become sensitive to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they might trust in Jesus for salvation anybody that wants this can do it right now it's not a matter of walking an aisle joining a church giving money pledging to work harder it's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord brings you under conviction the Lord won't believe for you but he'll bring you to the place of decision and you respond to it By trust, which is another word of saying faith, believing in what he has done. He's made room for you. He wants your life to be fruitful. And he wants to give you the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's yours for the taking. So I hope many people, as I'm speaking, will trust in the work of the Savior If it's something that you need more information on, I'm available after the service to talk. But an interesting passage about this struggle for wells in the life of Isaac. We've seen Isaac's prosperity, the Philistines' response, Abimelech's request, Isaac's departure, his continual struggling for the wells until finally he has an unchallenged well. Well. The third well, and you have an unchallenged offer today for salvation. The next Lord's Day, we'll take a look at his sojourn in Beersheba, verses 20 through 25, and Lord willing, a further covenant with Abimelech. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this ancient historical text and how it's useful to us in the 21st century. Help us to walk these things out this week by way of faith. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.